Good afternoon. This is Russell Stevenson with the Mormon History Guy podcast. This week we have the fantastic opportunity to discuss one of the most foundational moments in Mormon history, and that is the first vision as it was experienced by Joseph Smith as a young man. We're going to talk about the issue critically, talk about it in its many different facets, and and how it has come to us today. Uh, We're going to talk about the meaning of visions in Mormon history, and uh, and the implications of his experience for how we understand uh, Mormon theologies of of, uh, godhood as well as our relationship to deity. Please join us. Good afternoon. This is Russell Stevenson with the Mormon History Guy podcast, and I also have the lovely Brittany Nielsen with me again. and, I made uh, it to round two. Woo! Yes, yes. No, no, I'm the lucky one. I, I'm the fortunate one here. That's true, you are. I am. I am. I, <laughs> I, I have a gift for that kind of thing. Just like good things happen to me, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's the secret, man. Right, right. I, I think I must have just like helped an old lady across the street in the pre-mortal life. Oh, no, it, that's karma. Oh, no. You're, you're, I, I mixing, thought, your, you're mixing your... Uh... Wait, wait, no. Isn't, isn't that what we believe? That like we get blessings in this life based on what we did in pre-mortality? Isn't that what we do? No. Uh, I actually just read about that, and I can't remember. There is there is a line of thought, but I, I see. I'm really trying to justify, like, just that, that my sounds own like karma to me, though, because oh, okay. like if you were if you were a horrible person in in one of your prior lives, karma will dictate that you'll come back as a lower creature. It, theoretically, you could get down to like a dung beetle. Brittany doubles you know? as a Hindu, by right? the way. <laughs> I think the Hindu religion is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mormon Hinduism. It actually right? is. I, I really love the uh... – there's, there's correlations that run between all the religions if you go far enough back. Mm. It's like aren't we all just saying the same thing? Not really, but kind of. Well, and you see that, that's one interesting thing about Joseph Smith's life is you, know, you see this constant drive to get to what has been called you know, the Prisca Theologica, right? You have the pure theology, the theology of Adam. And, uh, and I think you can see that throughout his many translation activities and, and other aspects of his life. Um, and, and to that, you know, we're talking today about the first vision. And modern Latter-day Saints, you know, we do see this as a foundational event, right? We see this as kind of like the defining moment of, of what made Joseph Smith into who he is. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious, Brittany, what has – like what's been your experience with learning about the first vision um, you know, when when did you first learn of it? As as a child, as a teenager? Well, yeah. I mean, I was I was born into the church, and um, I was raised. Well, I lived in Virginia for eight years, and then we moved to Utah. So I've been a, a Mormon, a Utah Mormon, for the better part of you know my life. But I have to say, as far as the first vision goes, um, I think I grew up learning it the same way that everybody else did. So the only thing that kind of sticks out for me, which might be different is that it wasn't until probably within the last year, and I'm almost 31, so mm-hmm. I was you know, 30 years old, before I learned that there were different mm. accounts. I had no idea. That had never been taught to me in mm. any Sunday school or Relief Society or sacrament talk or conference talk. Yeah. Like, it was just one of those things. And I mean, you know, and there have been other things that have come up, and I'm like, why? What? Really? Because at first you think that it's... um. You write it off as, oh, that's just anti. That's not. Right. That's not true. Someone's making that up. And then you go back and you realize, no, even the the church um, says that there's actually there are you know several accounts. And you kind of go, why why didn't anyone ever say anything about that? Yeah. You know. And I think that's interesting. That would be the point they would bring up, and uh, because 
for for me, it's it's not at all surprising that an event would have different tellings of it, even by the same person. That's something you see a lot of. But you do have the question. It's like, well, it's not so much that there are different versions. It's just why has this been not talked about as much as a, as we would like it to be talked about? Right. Um, I I remember the first time I learned about there being uh, different accounts of it, and and. For the record, my experiences have been much like yours. You know, I grew up in the church, and I, I took it as, you know, commonsensical. I mean, matter of fact, and this is yeah, exactly. what happened. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when I was watching the movie God's Army, actually, oh, no. <laughs> I I heard them make a comment about how there are different accounts in the first vision. And one of the missionaries in that movie uh, reads it in some anti-literature, uh, and you know, one of his companions or one of his roommates says, "Why are you reading anti-literature?" And, you know, me being the curious kid that I was, um, I, I wasn't able to quite dismiss it out of hand as straight anti. It's like, well, typically there's a seed of truth in something. You know, mm-hmm. it, it may be blown way out of proportion. It may be distorted. But but still, there, there's a there there, as they right. say. Uh, so that was my first exposure to the idea that there was there were uh, different accounts of the first vision. And uh, and today we're going to talk about, you know, the, how those different accounts were framed and some of the implications that those – um, those accounts have had for how we understand uh, the nature of deity, and we are we're so blessed today to have uh, Dr. Stephen Harper with us. He is a a renowned scholar of, of Mormon history. He currently works at the LDS Church Archives uh, on the Joseph Smith Papers team. Uh, I I've had many experiences having uh, tremendous conversations with him about various aspects uh, of our faith and, and our history, and uh, I, I've been very impressed with his. Uh, with this commitment to helping people who are who are struggling with what today these days is called faith crises, and since he has written a book on Joseph Smith's first vision, uh, you know it's called it's a guide to the historical sources. I, I think he is particularly well uh, well positioned to discuss this topic with us. Uh, so here we have uh, Dr. Stephen Harper in the studio. So good to have you. Thanks, Russell. It's good to be here with you. It's it's our pleasure. Uh, so, Dr. Harper, I, I, I'm curious to, to know, just generally speaking, for those who aren't familiar with you, uh, what prompted you to become a scholar of Latter-day Saint history generally? Oh, boy, this is a good question. I, I, I've thought a lot about it, but I'm not sure I really know the answer. Um, mm. But when I try to um, go back to some sort of formative experience, it's it's a breakfast conversation I had with my father that must have been in the summer of 1985. It had to be mm-hmm. then because we were looking at the church news from the middle of May that mm-hmm. year, which published um, a letter that purportedly was written by Joseph Smith to Josiah Stoll. And as you likely know, it turned out that the letter was a forgery. That October, Mark Hoffman killed two people and then nearly himself. And in the wake of that, it was discovered that this and other documents had been forged by him. But well before anyone uh, knew that, I remember reading that in the church news and there was some commentary about it as well, sort Mm -hmm. of um, contextualization for it. And I remember being a little bit um, flummoxed by it, something similar to what Brittany and you have described, and um, asking my dad, why don't they teach me about that in church? And he said something like, 
I don't know. He he had read it before me, and so he knew what I was asking about. And he he the best thing he did, I think, was not pretend to know. He didn't try to right. answer all my questions or dismiss it. Uh, he took my questions seriously without pretending to know a simple right. answer. Um, and then one of the most wonderful things he did was tell me how he knew that the Book of Mormon was true. So um, ever since then, I've, uh, well, it's hard to say. I, I couldn't say that I knew I was supposed to be a church historian at that point. There's no way I I thought I was destined to be a, you know, a football player or something like that. Something didn't require too much intelligence because I didn't regard myself as having very much. Uh, and I've never been the smartest kid in the class or anything like that. My sisters would are still surprised, I'm sure, that I have followed an academic <laughs> career. They're like, doctor. <laughs> exactly. Doctor. My brother, so who's a real doctor, uh, thinks that <laughs> that I uh, should be able to take someone's appendix out if I'm going to be called doctor. So, <laughs> so um, nice. Invalidate your degree. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I'm just a regular person. Uh, person, but I do have an insatiable curiosity about how things became the way they are today. Mm. And I realized a few years ago that I study history because I want to understand who I am. It's a lot like uh, studying psychology might be for some folks or, or just about anything, you know, through just about any creative work or even scientific investigation, certainly social sciences or your humanities, I think we're trying to figure out who we are and what makes us the way we are. So I am as Mormon as a person can be, and uh, so I study Mormonism to try to figure out what that means, I think. So let me ask a question then, because I know when I talk to my friends who aren't LDS or who are maybe former LDS, um, because I think we can agree that there are intelligent people on both sides of this. Certainly. You know, there are scholars who look at all the same information and say, absolutely not. Yeah, they come to radically different yeah. conclusions. And, right. and I think you even mentioned that in, in your article. So ha, was there ever a point during your process of, of becoming a historian, of searching, of researching, where you find yourself going, hmm, I don't know? Or did you always approach it from the from the standpoint of, I know this is true, I just want to understand it? See what I'm saying? Where someone yeah, could step sure. and say, oh, well, that's confirmation bias almost, which we all do. Sure. Yeah. 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 Does that make sense? Confirmation bias is a real thing. Sure, yeah. it does make sense. It's a great question and uh, something I have thought a lot about. So I would say that that teenage experience I was just describing, it had the effect of – uh, really putting me on a foundation that I've never moved from. So, in other words, it, it was at age 14 that I was wondering, hey, is this uh, what I've thought it is? Is this what I have been told it is? And to have my dad say, man, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Here's the thing I know. And and plant me on his testimony, the Book of Mormon, It'd be a lot of years before I would gain my own conviction um, by the Spirit, certainly in my judgment, of the Book of Mormon. But I, I knew how to do it. I'd been given a model, right? I'd been given a, a, in philosophical terms, we'd say an epistemology. 
So how we know something. Yeah, yeah. And a, and a very Mormon one. So my father handed that off to me. And it wasn't just that one day. That was sort of the way he lived. Um, so like many Mormon kids, I, I sort of grew up with that. And a lot of the people I'm seeing who are coming to these questions, whether it becomes a crisis or whether it's sort of the usual um, questioning, what do I know and how, a lot of people are coming to it later than I did. Mm. And for me to come to it at age 14 in the context of the Hoffman forgery scandal was helpful. And one of the most helpful things was to realize, my dad finished that discussion by saying, you know, I don't understand it, but if you just hang on, you'll probably see this will kind of all work its way out. Well, of course, he was prophetic. He was right. He turned out to be exactly right. And there was an enormous amount of tragedy in the meantime. But by 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 not pretending to know more than I knew at that point and just watching patiently as things worked out, I realized my dad was right about that. And that's given me, um, in later years, I've just always taken that same attitude. As I've come on to the sorts of issues that uh, are discussed here, you know, first vision, uh, race and priesthood, plural marriage, book of Abraham, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My attitude has always been to say, hey, why don't they teach me that? Um, I found a good answer to that question, by the way. But then the next response is to go back to that discussion and say, you know, if I pursue this out, I'll find that it'll work out. Um, so to be patient and to be persistent, uh, I call it being a seeker, um, you know, to, to be on the quest for further light and knowledge. And I, I think it, it's part of my religion to seek learning by study as well as by faith. And I can't pull those two things apart. So part of my response to your question is I don't I'm not sure I ever have felt a need to be real appealing to a completely rational mm -hmm. um or rationalistic uh attitude uh I've uh, I've always felt comfortable in my faith and I'm perfectly um comfortable uh, saying that today. You know, I, I could stand up in an academic meeting if need be and, and be comfortable in my Mormon skin. Um, and I know very well people will say, well, that's confirmation bias or that you just feel that way because you're a Mormon. And I say, well, I'm guilty. I'm, <laughs> guilty as charged. Guilt, yeah. You found something that's that works yeah, for you yeah. and and feels right and and I think you know you're you're talking about uh, the the parent or the father son relationship it's really interesting here uh, because that's an experience I also had that uh, I went through my own crisis crisis of faith as it were uh, around the same time that you did mm. only in my case it was brought on not by the the Hoffman uh, forgeries, but by the internet. Oh, right. You know, when right. the internet came to town, it exposed me into an entire discourse of Mormonism that I was not really familiar with sure. prior to that time. And as some of these things came up, I, I brought these issues to my father. I said, you know, Dad, what do you know about this? And, you know, he's no historian, uh, you know, by, by any stretch of the imagination, he'd be the first to admit that. Uh, but neither did he say, 
oh, you shouldn't be asking these questions. Right. You know, he, he didn't invalidate my quest. And I, I think another interesting aspect of, of this, and this is what ties it back to the Joseph Smith story, is I'm sensing a similar relationship between Joseph Smith Jr. and yeah. Joseph Smith Sr., Right. Joseph Smith was senior, uh, was was nothing if he wasn't, you know, at the very least, very open and willing to exploring a number of different, um, number of different lines of inquiry. Right, he was willing to dabble in money digging right. if you know if it, the opportunity presented itself. He was willing to read the Bible, you know, as, as a devoted father. So, uh, I can sense that Joseph Smith had the kind of relationship with his father to where he said, "Hey, Dad, I just I just saw an angel." I know that's totally out of you know out of the realm of our experiences, but but that's what happened, and his father didn't invalidate him. Right. Um, yeah, I think you're on to something there. Uh, certainly, his mother is probably at least as important in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we might even surmise that Joseph learns how to go into the woods to pray by having his mother tell her certainly. own stories. And there is um, some evidence from Lucy's memoir that Joseph was not eager necessarily to tell his family about the Moroni visit. Um, Lucy tells us that Moroni, when he comes that second day and says, why didn't you tell your your dad? Uh, Joseph says, I was afraid he wouldn't believe me. And then Moroni says, according to Lucy, he'll believe every word you say. And And I think you're right that it was a validating thing for Joseph to go into that field and have dad say, great, go get the stack of gold and let's, right. <laughs> let's, uh, let's see what, what she can do with that. So how credible, um, is the, is the Lucy Max Smith diaries? Cause I, people on both sides have used that. Right. So it's a memoir, um, written in the mid 1840s and I like to say about these things that they're like tobacco. So that's provocative for Mormons. Mm, yes. <laughs> so in the in the word of wisdom, the it says tobacco is to be used with judgment and skill. And that's exactly true for historical documents. So um, a memoir like Lucy's is extremely revealing. Very, very, very valuable, but not necessarily on its face. Um the most the best historians in my judgment are the ones that learn how a person remembers things and what difference that will make in the way Lucy creates her version of history. Mm-hmm. Some listeners are going to think I'm invalidating it. Like I'm say Lucy just lies to us and makes it all up. No more than than we all do. We all make up our history. And that's the nature of memoirs, right? Absolutely. Well, it's because we're all telling our own story. Right. And no two stories. I mean, even if you go through the exact same experience, no two narratives, no two stories are going to be exactly the same because they were seen through different eyes. Very well said. I I recall an anecdote where Ronald Reagan was talking to a biographer about some experience he had had. And Nancy walks by and says, Ronnie, that that didn't happen. And Ronald says, when you have your memoirs written (laughs) – you can ha- write it however you want. <laughs> well, this sort of, I think, plays into or ties into what we were sort of wanting to get into, the the accounts of the first vision. So, mm-hmm. um, again, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask you a question as if, let's pretend I don't know much. Let's say I'm a member of the church who has, you know, been perhaps trolling the Internet mm-hmm. and has seen certain things, yeah. and now I have questions. And so my question would be, okay, I've heard that there are different accounts of the first vision. 
So I go online. I start researching that. Here's this account. Here's this account. We can say these ones are credible. These aren't. You know, these ones aren't. So let's just stick with what the church acknowledges, okay? Okay. Let's, let's not go outside the realm of what the church itself kind of says these are credible. How yeah. many credible versions of of the first vision do we have? Oh, it sounds like a simple question, doesn't it? Uh, you should be able to just <laughs> but th- throw not. out a number. But let me let me tell you how it works. Um, okay. So you may hear that there are four or five that okay. are direct accounts. That is produced by Joseph Smith, either by his own hand or right. or dictated. To exactly. Somebody. Only one of those four or five was written in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. Okay. That's the earliest one we have. It's it's as best we can tell, it's his earliest attempt at an autobiography. It's six pages, mostly written in Joseph's hand. It begins in Frederick Williams' hand, but very quickly, halfway down the first page, trains, tra- changes over to Joseph. You're fired. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'd be fascinated to know why. Uh, nobody knows for sure why. But um, so that's an 1832 document. There is a, a an allusion to the first vision in DNC 20, which is an April 1830 document. So not an account, just a a reference to it. And frankly, we wouldn't necessarily know that was a reference to it without this 1832 history, which describes it more fully in similar terms. So 1832 is regarded as the first account. Then in 1835, on the 9th of November, Joseph Smith told the story of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon to a visitor from the East. And his scribe captured it in Joseph's journal. And Joseph began that story by saying it starts with this vision of one personage followed by another, and they were glorious. And uh, and I was, uh, before they appeared, I was overwhelmed by this awful feeling. So um, you have a first vision account in that situation, and it's captured in Joseph's journal. That's the second one in the historical record. A week later, Joseph told the experience to a fellow named Erastus Holmes, and it's again captured in his journal, but it's not a description of the event. It's just a mention that he described the event to this guy. So that's the difference between the four and five. Okay. If somebody says there are four accounts, they're not counting the mid-November 1835 mention. Okay. And if someone says there are five accounts, they are counting that as a, as an, a description of it. The next one we have is the best known one. This one was recorded in 1838, although we don't have that document. We know it was re-recorded in 1839 in what we call Manuscript Book A1. That's Joseph Smith's history, and that's the one that's excerpted in the Pearl of Great Price. Okay. And then the last one of the four or five is what we call the Wentworth Letter. This is an 1842 letter solicited by a, an editor from Chicago who was uh, seeking source material for a friend of his who was writ- writing a history of New Hampshire. And Joseph Smith by now is somewhat renowned and um, spent some of his early life in New Hampshire. So um, this fellow Wentworth is seeking uh, information. We don't actually have that letter except as it was published by the church in the Times and Seasons. So. Okay. So the church acknowledges all of those and has for a long time. The year that I was born, um, James Allen published an article in the Improvement Era. This is before the Enzyme magazine existed, uh, talking about the different accounts of the First Vision and what we know about them and how we know it. So 
And that was shortly after the uh, the 1832 account had been discovered, right? Exactly. A few years after the 32 account was discovered in the mid-60s and mm-hmm. also Dean Jesse about the same time discovered that earliest 1835 account. It's in Joseph Smith's journal, but when they came to put the history of the church together, drawing on that journal, they simply put in a note that said, refer to the the 1838. Right. So the difference yeah. between the earliest one, the 1832, uh-huh. and the one that's published in the Pearl of Great Price, what are the variances between those, or are there any? Oh, yeah, there are some, and they're quite interesting. I'm very fascinated by them. Uh, you try to rein me in here if I get out of control. But <laughs> So what we would – if you asked a critic, they're going to say that the 1832 account only mentions one divine being – Mm-hmm. And it says the vision happened in Joseph Smith's 16th year. So they're going to immediately draw your attention to what they regard as the glaring inconsistencies. And we do have this document. The yeah. church owns uh, Yeah, yeah you can look oh, at it right now in Joseph Smith's papers. Okay. It's right there. So this isn't hearsay. This is no, no, an no. actual yeah. document. Yeah. JosephSmithPapers.org, they're featured. Uh, there's a link that will take you to all the First Vision accounts. Okay. Um, so one thing that critics might – critics are really, really, really skillful at insinuation. So did you know there are several accounts of the first vision, right? I can go I, in my church history class. I can say to my students, hey, guys, there are, there are nearly half a dozen accounts of the first vision. You want to see them? Let's look at them together. <laughs> After an hour of that, there's a completely different – well, right from the beginning, there's a different feeling than if you say, hey, did you know there are right. several accounts of the first vision? Right. It demystifies it. Yeah. Right. And you're implying that there shouldn't be, right? There shouldn't sure. be, right? If there are, there's something wrong. What, what an absurd idea that is. I think it's because it's such a big – it's like – because I've heard this it's argument before. But, but people will say things like it, it's the whole eyewitnesses aren't credible argument, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like something happens 10, yeah. 20 years ago. You're going to go back and it's like, well, no, I don't remember exactly what I was wearing. and right. No, I don't exactly remember what he was wearing either. But then people will say – and I've heard this again. It's like, yes, but if you saw God – that's not like saying what were you wearing 12 years ago. It's like people make the argument that the difference between where were you on the night of this versus did I see one person or two personages mm-hmm. is, you know, like – Big deal. Is a big deal and should that be overlooked, yeah. you know? You're right. Uh, what you're or talking about Or was it even is, overlooked for yeah, that matter? Not in exactly. my opinion I'll, and I'll explain why. But you're talking about what I call hypothetical history. Mm-hmm. And the, the, mm-hmm. this is something that critics and, frankly, a whole lot of believers excel at. And it's it's a terrible way to do history. But it, but you start out by saying if, right, either implied or explicit. If Joseph Smith saw God in Christ, then this is how the story is going to tell. We do this uh, at pageants and we do it to each other in Sunday school classes right. sometimes. <laughs> it's freighted with assumptions and the first thing you learn in your history education is you can't do that. You have to go where the source material leads you. You have to go where the witnesses lead you. Whatever we may say about the reliability or unreliability of witnesses, and that's a complicated question, you have to go where the evidence leads you. So uh, to this question of what does the 1832 account actually say, the words are, the Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord. The Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. And uh, so that's the fact. That's what the document says. Now, you have to interpret that fact. 
and people don't necessarily think they are or that's, that's what they're doing, but it is. Right. And and you will interpret that fact differently depending on what you think about Joseph Smith and whether you're willing to trust him or not. The 1835 account says, I saw one personage and then another personage. And two of the hearsay accounts, we didn't talk about them so much, but the secondary accounts, hearsay may give people the idea that they're not reliable and they're like tobacco. They're to be used with judgment and skill. They can be reliable if you can triangulate them and things like that. So in other words, we have three accounts that are contemporary. They were written during Joseph Smith's lifetime that all say that he first saw one divine being and then another, not simultaneous. Now, people may say, no, he saw two personages, right? But there's nothing in any of the accounts that says he saw them at exactly the same time or for the, the exactly the same length of time. So there's nothing to lead us to believe that he didn't see one who then introduced him to the other one. With that in mind, listen to the same words again. The Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. It may very well be that in his 1832 account, Joseph Smith is saying what maybe modern Mormons would say, I saw God, and he revealed Christ. I don't know if that's what he meant, but the possibility is certainly live, certainly live given the the totality of the historical record. And a good historian is going to study the entire record and read it in as good context as, as possible. Now, it's tempting for, you know, for some of us perhaps to, to listen to this and think, okay, that's, that's all very good, but how do we know that you're not just splicing and dicing yeah. the, you know, the language in order to, you know, to fit it to you know, your, right. own, your own preconceived notion? That's exactly the question I would ask if I was listening to me now. And I would say, I, who is this yokel? I want to know <laughs> what the documents say. And that's why I did the book the way I did. I wanted pictures of these documents in the middle of that book, and they're there. And, of course, they're on the Joseph Smith Papers website. There are other places. So nobody should take my word for any of this. Um, if you're debating whether or not to believe that Joseph Smith saw God in Christ, for heaven's sake, find out. Right. Do the homework. Search the historical record at Joseph Smith's invitation. I mean, he's the one who gives us the Book of Mormon and in his own versions of this saying, search the records, search the revelations we've received and find out for yourself. My gosh, I would not, I would not bank. Well, in his 1835 account, Joseph said he wanted to be certain in matters that involve eternal consequences. That's Absolutely. exactly how I feel. Well, right, right as one should be. We should be yeah. thinking about you know the great things of the universe. Absolutely. Right. If there's a God and he wants things done a certain way, then certainly this should be the most important thing yeah. to us. I mean, that's kind of how I've always seen it. But the problem that, that I ran into, I think, is you talked about epistemology, how you know something. Um, and it's one thing to say, well, you know, by, by feeling, but, but then the problem is you look at these other religions, you look at Hindus and Buddhists and, and, you know, and Muslims and, and they all feel their religions. I I have no doubt they feel them the way that we feel them. And so then that kind of begs the question is feeling a valid form of knowledge. You say, okay, but can we even trust ourselves? Right. So if not feeling, then what, if you can't, so then we go, well, facts, well, but I didn't know Joseph Smith. You didn't right. know Joseph Smith. These are all, you know, 
records that have been passed down. So we say, well, do you trust Joseph Smith? Well, how am I supposed to do? I didn't even know the man. Right. These are terrific you questions. So. Absolutely great questions. And, you know, um, I, I really like Mormon epistemology. It works for me. It doesn't work for everyone. But when I say Mormon epistemology, I mean that idea, seek learning by study and also by faith, as if you cannot pull those two apart, as if you go one direction, you go to either end of that spectrum and you're going wrong, right? So if I am seeking knowledge by faith alone or just by what I think I feel, that's not right. It's insufficient. If I'm doing it just by my intellect alone, that's not right, and that's insufficient. And uh, that that way of thinking about it tastes so good to me. I don't completely trust my intellect, and maybe this comes from never being the smartest kid in the class. Um, I remember going to graduate school quite afraid that I was going to be exposed as as an ignoramus. And, you know, I sat in classes and seminars, and after a while I thought, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but these people aren't either. And there's a fair amount of pretense in in the academy, a fair amount of people pretending to be smarter than they really are. And there's a wonderful passage in the Book of Mormon where we're invited to think of ourselves as fools before God. That's That's useful in my judgment. So it might seem like we're talking out of both sides of our mouth here, like the book of Moses does, right? Moses at once learns that he is nothing and that he's He's also a son of God. Yeah, he's a son of God. That's a useful way to think about these things too. We are capable of very good thought and God expects us to to work hard with our brains and, and analyze and critique and be rigorous and at the same time, I wouldn't dare trust only in that, in matters that involve eternal consequences. Because if, if history shows us anything, it's that people uh, change their thought over time. I mean, dominant philosophies change over time. What we think we know changes over time. Uh, things that are absolutely certain today or 500, were 500 years ago will not be so certain. So we need something beyond that. And you can uh, call it naivete or faith or whatever you want to. For me, it works to believe that my Heavenly Father is concerned enough about me to be willing to communicate to me things that are vital. And I don't claim any great revelations. I don't, I'm not one who is um, real comfortable talking about God said this to me, God said that to me, the way you sometimes hear. Um, but I have no hesitation in saying, I know by the power of the Holy Ghost that the Book of Mormon is true. And if it's true, I trust Joseph Smith and his accounts of the vision. Having said that, I read those accounts probably as critically as anybody I know. And um, I I believe I've identified uh, places where we could, could, what we could call blended memories. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the mom I've learned for myself, Presbyterianism isn't true. I doubt that happened when he thinks it did in that account. Mm. Um, And we won't get into all the details here, but all I mean to say is I trust the basic integrity of Joseph's story, even as I question the nature of the memories and and how— Details and and how you piece the narrative together. Exactly, right. How it's recorded and remembered over time and so on. So 
uh, I don't think we have to be, um, I, I, it, to me, it's a pragmatic philosophy. It's, it, it's one that works and therefore I go with it. It's not as if you're sticking your fingers in your ears every time there's right. inconsistencies or cognitive right. dissonance and going, well, I'm just going to shelf that because, yeah. you know, it, it's like it has to make sense to your mind and to your heart. It reminds me yeah. a little of uh, William James's approach to religion. Very much so. Where he says, well, this works. Like what does it do? And, and that's how we should uh, you know, assess uh, the nature of a, of a religious claim. And really that's not the different from what Jesus taught. You, know, you shall judge them by their fruits. Right. What makes it difficult, I think, though, again, going back to this idea of how does one know truth, it's, you you know, because there's this sort of universal, universalistic, I don't know if that's probably not a word, just made it up, it's a word now. So, but philosophy of as long as it works for you sort of thing, like if you're a Buddhist and being a Buddhist makes you want to be a better person, then God's cool with that. If you're a Christian and being a Christian makes you want to be a better person, then God is cool with that. And so that's one school of philosophy, but the the trouble with at least from from what I've observed, the trouble with the with the LDS faith is that they're not really saying that. They're saying, no, no, God has a specific way, and then here's the authority. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think that's what makes it difficult for a lot of people who are struggling with their faith because it's not it's not enough just to be a good person. It's not enough even to just be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. You need temple ordinances. You need endowments. You, you know what I'm saying? You need these. You need the right, right. authority. And, so, and how can the first vision um, inform these kinds of discussions? <laughs> right. Great question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Let's talk about it, though. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's a big, it's a big question. I, I don't expect there to be a quippy one sentence so, response. So seven. S- the answer is seven. Yeah, forty-two. Go seven. <laughs> question. So, so what you're talking about? is uh, sometimes called the difference between propositional soteriology and dispositional soteriology. Mm. So if soteriology is the theology of salvation, the question to oversimplify is, are we saved because we're good, we have the right disposition, or are we saved because we believe the right ideas, the right propositions? And, of course, it's a false dilemma if if Mormonism is your... Um, is your place that if, if the gospel as Joseph Smith gives it to us is the well from which we draw our answers, then the answer is it's not that simple. The fourth article of faith is, is excellent. Uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's a proposition. Repentance, that's dispositional. Mm. Baptism, that's propositional. Receiving the Holy Ghost, that's dispositional. So we've got in Mormonism a soteriology that rejects the dilemma, the false dilemma, as I take it, of some other soteriologies, right? Are you saved by faith or are you saved by works? Right. Our answer is yes. Right, right. So, um, but I know that still doesn't get to the bottom of your your interesting, very interesting inquiry. But what, what I meant to say in all that is what you notice then is that even inside the church, people have personalities, And some personalities prefer propositional soteriology and some prefer dispositional soteriology, right? And some of us like to eat, drink, and be married. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) That's universalism. And I I could go with that. If I I could believe it, I would go with it. Right? Let's all just be groovy and it'll be fine. I I like groovy theology. (laughs) So what does Joseph Smith in the first vision have to say about all this? Joseph Smith is a convicted sinner. He's an, he's an evangelical 
he lives in an evangelical culture. This means that the number one doctrine that's impressed upon him is the fall. He is fallen, and he is desperately in need of salvation through the atonement of Christ. And if he doesn't get it, he will be damned. And hell is hot and very long. And, and you can feel the flames. It's a, it's it's a real, it's right there. It's a real place. Absolutely. So as he comes of age in his teenage years, noticing his 1832 account, he says, at about age 12, I began to be concerned about the welfare of my immortal soul. And rightly so. Indeed. <laughs> so he's a teenage boy. He's, um, he's conscious of his sinfulness, and um, he's very worried about what to do about it. And he, he has a variety of soteriology, soteriologies he can shop from. And the shorthand way of him telling us about it is, I was partial to Methodism, and I had some desire to be united with them. What he means there is Arminian soteriology is what I like. That is that you're fallen, but you're not totally depraved. You have what Mormons would call agency. You can choose to come to Christ and be saved through his atoning sacrifice as compared to Presbyterianism, right? Presbyterianism, mom, I just learned for myself Presbyterianism isn't true. What he means to say there is that awful idea that I feared is true, Calvinism, which damns me to hell and says there's not a thing I can do about it. You, it was preordained. Yeah, yeah, right? uh, God knew for, from the beginning yeah. the best you can do is know you're standing before God. Exactly which right. is interesting to me because they don't believe in a pre-existence or a pre-moral life, right? They believe that the soul comes into the body at, at the time of birth. So if a soul – how does a soul therefore You existed in the itself? mind of God. Yeah. So that, that's you were a bad thought response. essentially. <laughs> yeah. You, you were a twinkle in, in the almighty's eye. But, but you see what I'm saying? It's like how, how can you know if a soul is damned or not if it hasn't had a life to be – to damn itself with? Good question. So. There's a lot of smart uh, Calvinists and philosophers who could weigh in on that, but I'm yeah. not. I'm Anyways. Not right. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, yeah, I'm let, derailing. Let's get back to the topic at hand. <laughs> no. Good stuff. I wish I could. I've, I mean – you and I, I'll buy you and your, your, yeah. your wife lunch sometime and just pick your brain for hours uh, on end. Uh, you know, inquiring people think about that question, and I, I don't know that they have a good answer to it. I've never read one. Um, but, uh, you know, why the, the, the Methodist and definitely the Universalist response is, what kind of a God creates mankind just to damn most of them to hell? <laughs> I mean, the, the, one of the main articles of faith in Calvinism is limited atonement. What? God... A sovereign being in the universe creates all mankind and he only atones for a tiny few and damns the rest to hell. Yeah. Uh, a, a big part of it is explained by their um, sense of the fall. So in Joseph Smith's sense of the fall, it's a transgression that's redeemable and, and frankly is part of God's redeeming work. But in in most of Christendom's uh, sense of the fall, it's a terrible error. I mean, it, it's where everything goes wrong, terribly wrong. And so that, I think, um, is a big part of the explanation for the different uh, approaches. But where were we headed? We were going well, We were talking about how the first all. vision can inform you know, her, yeah. her questions about you know, how we know like, whether just being right. a good person is sufficient or whether you know, a historical narrative or yeah. a certain thesis is important. What would Joseph Smith had – from all you've studied, what do you think Joseph Smith would have said about that? Is it more – Joseph Smith sitting right here. You, how, would, how would he yeah, respond? You use some big words, so sure. go back. But it's like it, – it's the difference between saved by grace, saved by works. Indeed. You know? So – 
You know, in those lines that we read, maybe as throwaway lines, Joseph Smith answers your question. I favor Methodism. I'm partial to it. I'd like to join it. And I, I know for myself, Presbyterianism isn't true. So think of his think of his going into the grove as a quest to figure out which one of those soteriologies is true. Methodism gives him the power to choose to be redeemed by Christ. Presbyterianism says Christ may redeem you, but there's not a thing you can do to effect that, that salvation. So Presbyterianism leaves him powerless to overcome the effects of the fall, which he knows have a hold on him. Methodism gives him some power to overcome the effects of the fall, which he knows have a hold on him. And so, for example, in one of the secondary accounts, this beautiful account written by Joseph's German uh, dentist and sometime Hebrew teacher, a convert named Alexander Nyber, he says that Joseph tells him about a month before Joseph's death that he went to a revival meeting, Methodist revival meeting, and I wanted to feel and shout like the rest, but I could feel nothing. So put those pieces together, and what you have is Joseph Smith telling you, I wanted Methodism to be true. I desperately wanted to be true, but when I tried to experience Methodism, I could feel nothing. And that's what Erasmus Turner also said as well, correct? That he got a spark of Methodism while he was you know, at one of these revivals in Phelps. Right. It's not clear. Those could very well be the same meeting, but it's not certain that they necessarily mm. are. But you're exactly right. Turner reports that Joseph caught a spark of Methodism on the road to Vienna, or and, what's now felt. And, and Turner was by no means a friendly source. No. He was, he was uh, <laughs> overwhelmingly hostile. <laughs> right. But you almost, you almost like those sources better because at least you know that they're not like <laughs> pandering, you know. There's <laughs> a wonderful example of that in, in the history of the Disciples of Christ on the Western Reserve. It's another source that's uh, doesn't have much positive to say about Joseph Smith, but can't figure out how he healed uh, Elsa Johnson's rheumatic mm-hmm. arm. It's just, it says it was the moral shock produced by him. Whatever moral shock is. Whatever moral <laughs> shock, by him audaciously grabbing her by the arm and saying, woman, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. And she's able to do her laundry after that, hang her laundry over the line. And the author <laughs> just scratching his head saying, I'll be darned. But I don't like Joseph Smith at all, but somehow that woman could function when she couldn't before. So right, so we were speaking about Methodism and, yeah. and how it would have informed Joseph Smith's uh, first vision experience. Right. So think of it as him trying to discern what's the right way to be saved. And so the question, what church is true, is not a question for its own sake. It's a question that he needs to know in order to gain forgiveness of his sins. Like what doctrine? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Competing doctrines. And the answer, notice, is neither one of them is exactly right. Joseph is thinking, well, somebody's got to be right. And then he says, he confesses in his 1839, 38 account, he says, uh, you know, I was worried that they may be all wrong together. Some critics will draw attention to that. Verse 10 says that he had, he'd often wondered if maybe they're all wrong. And then in verse 18, he's, when the Lord told him, you know, none of the churches is true, he said that had never entered into his heart yet. And so some critics find that a glaring inconsistency. Having read all the accounts over and over, I find it to be Joseph Smith um, keeping a very clear distinction he makes between what's going on in his head and what's going on in his heart. And, and in a literary sense, 
the whole crisis, the dramatic tension of his story is that my head and my heart are at odds with each other, right? This sounds familiar to Mormons, maybe. Absolutely. Um, it's a very, very difficult dilemma. What he thinks he's figured out in his head is just too terrible to conclude in his heart. So in a last effort to find some resolution, he goes into the woods and gets an answer that resolves the problem of, you know, that reconciles head and heart. Now, I remember when in your article you had said something about the, the, the quotation from Joseph Smith of all the other church, churches are an abomination to me. So that that is he, – he does state that, the, that God said that or no? Yeah, is that so, a question? So the 1839 account as excerpted in the Pearl of Great Price and the original document of it says that, that God and Christ appear. It says, I saw two personages and one introduces the other as his beloved son. And then the, the, the son says, all the churches are wrong, their professors are corrupt, and all their creeds are an abomination. So that's the language of it. So it, by your – again, this is by your interpretation. Uh-huh. When they say their creeds are an abomination, what was different? Like what was the difference? And what creed was he talking about? Yeah. Uh, oftentimes we assume he's talking about the Nicene Creed. Uh, I, I sometimes well, question that. Well, people just attribute that to the, the Catholic Church. Remember, we used to think that when the scripture said the great and abominable whore of the earth, we literally meant the Catholic Church. Do we still believe that? I thought that that no. was not. I'm like <laughs> – Stephen that. Robinson wrote a brilliant piece about that. Yeah. So. But – so yeah, what did he mean by creeds? Oh, OK. I would throw a blanket over all of them. Uh, Nicaea. Westminster. Right all the way up, yeah. The, the further you get from real apostles, the longer your creeds become. So who in the world is coming up with that stuff? It's not apostles. And, uh, and so I'm unapologetic about that. All their creeds are an abomination in, in the words of, of the Lord to Joseph Smith. And um, I think that one possible explanation for that is because those creeds give you a, a wrong sense of who God is, right? He's incomprehensible and unknowable. When Jesus in uh, John, Gospel of John says, this is eternal life to know God. Right. Know- if you know me, you'll know who yeah, sent me. Right. Sure. And, you know, speaking to um, you know, to the contextualization of Joseph Smith's experience within his community – you know, we even talk about Presbyterianism and, you know, Presbyterians were, you know, known for being, you know, fairly mainstream, you know, fairly predictable. Right, quite respectable. Uh, right. You know, they weren't the kinds of people to go off into the woods and, and have visions. Uh, so I, I'm interested about how Joseph Smith may have fit in with maybe the subculture of, of upstate New York where, where people were having visions. Right. I mean, and was yeah. this a common experience? If Joseph Smith were to approach somebody, would they would they know where he was coming from or would this have struck them as a very strange phenomenon? <laughs> I saw question. God. Like, so did I. <laughs> and... <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question, and we actually know quite a bit about it. Um, Richard Bushman wrote an excellent article on the visionary world of Joseph Smith, and uh, I and others have researched into it as well. Uh, Non-Latter-day Saints have dug into this topic, and um, one of the best ways to see it is Charles Finney. So at about the same time, and not very far away, in upstate New York, in Adams County, Charles Finney goes into the woods and prays. 
But and, and who is Charles Finney? Charles Finney will become a Presbyterian minister and one of the leading evangelists of the 19th century. I mean, uh, we would ask who's Charles Finney, but uh, they would say, yeah. uh, who doesn't know who Charles exactly Finney is? Right. Uh, Billy Graham of the early 19th century. Okay. Uh, very influential. We sometimes too casually use the term the burned over district, right? Joseph Smith lived in the burned over district. No, he didn't. It didn't become burned over until he was he he left it. Uh, it was burned over because Charles Finney and others like him evangelized it in the decade or so after Joseph Smith. So he had a vision as well? He yeah. claimed to have had a vision? Yeah, not so much in the woods, but when he got back to his law office, he saw the Lord. Now, the interesting thing about Finney is that the further away from his vision he gets in time, the more he waters it down and dismisses it and uh, dismisses especially what I call the theological content of it. It's just a, a manifestation of God's love, right, by the time we're done. Which is, an op- which is in contrast to Joseph exactly Smith, which right. got more almost grandiose as it exactly went becomes right. more detailed, right. more potent. Very much more detailed and especially in terms of the theological content, right? I saw two personages. They did in reality speak to me. The further away Joseph gets from his vision, the more concrete he describes the experience, especially the details that we uh, latch on to to reveal to us things about the nature of God answer to prayer, uh, the, 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 the actuality of the visionary experience. Finney is almost embarrassed, like you were saying. It's, in 1820, it's a ripe, fertile field for claiming you've had a vision of Christ. It has been for um, a, a generation. But we're right on the border there of that sort of thing being credible. So Presbyterians are moving already away from that. Methodists are still fostering that. They're, they take seriously people's, especially simple people's, real uh, heartfelt spiritual experiences. And this is what I think is one of the interesting things about Joseph saying, I, a few days after the vision, I told it to a Methodist minister who had been influential in, in getting me to think about these things in the first place, and he flatly rejected me. Joseph sounds so surprised at that response. And the minister probably is much more aware, much more aware than Joseph is at this history of Methodist enthusiasm would have been the word they used. And that word would have been used as a critique against Methodists. You're too enthusiastic. You're full of of some spirit, but whether it's the spirit of God, I don't know. So Methodists, respectable Methodists especially, are starting to move away from that, are starting to become embarrassed by ordinary folks claiming to see God or have uh, an angel come or have an overwhelming manifestation. Does that include like the speaking in tongues? Who wrote the book, The Peculiar People? Peculiar People? Spencer Fluman. Is that what? And he he Mm -hmm. talks about how even in the early church history, people were talking in tongues and not not the way that we interpret speaking right. in tongues because that was just sort of the yep. the the atmosphere at the time. Indeed. So so yeah, uh, Methodists especially not so much tongues in their revival meetings but um lots of uh falling on the ground or jerking exercises they would call it. They would often have people who had not yet got religion or become converted to Christ come and sit on the anxious bench. Um and then the the congregation would pray, the minister would pray, invite them to get the Holy Ghost. And so very enthusiastic Methodism is. But 
there's a mid-19th century history of Methodism that says orthodoxy became Methodized and then Methodism became orthodox. So you're watching this interesting transition. Uh, Methodism takes the world by storm and and grows very quickly into the biggest church in North America, very much because it takes the spiritual experiences of people like Lucy Smith and Joseph Smith seriously. But as it does so, and as it moves over time, there's this desire to become more respectable, more like the Presbyterians. And they move away from that sort of um, exaggerated or some would feel ecstatic spiritual experience. It's kind of embarrassing. And, you know, Bushman in his biography of Joseph Smith, he remarks that, you know, most Methodist ministers or even, you know, most mainstream ministers, they would have dismissed Joseph's experience, not because it was so strange, but actually because they knew it all too well. Right, right. That possibility certainly exists. Fawn Brody said he couldn't have had a first vision because if he did, it would have been all over the newspapers the day afterwards. And Mark Astros McGee, Richard Bushman, and others have said, that's not the only possibility available to us. Why can't we uh, suppose that maybe it's because, you know, 20 other people in the neighborhood are are claiming to have had visions as well. Right, and Joseph Smith certainly would have, you know, would have known other people who who did have those kinds of visionary experiences. I, I'm thinking of certainly his mother. Yeah, at the very least, his mother and and, and others. I'm thinking of Bushman's article that you referenced earlier, uh, in the visionary world of Joseph Smith, where you know you he catalogs all of these individuals who are having experiences that are remarkably similar. Sometimes even using the same kinds of language. Right. Um, I recall you know Solomon Chamberlain, who was you know one of the earliest converts to Mormonism, and. Uh, and also something of a visionary himself, yep. he approaches the Smith home and he says, is this a visionary household? And Hiram Smith says, yes, this is a visionary household. It was almost as if he was speaking in some kind of code. Right, right. It's a subculture. It's certainly not mainstream, but it's not, um, it's not uh, out on the very farthest fringe either. To that point, um, how much evidence do we have, if any, that Joseph Smith actually did tell people about his vision prior to because that's another, you know, it's another spear in the bag of, I think, yeah. critics. They would say there's no evidence to show that he even talked about this until he Which was. Which is what Fawn Brody argued, essentially. Sure. Yeah. sure. It's, a, it's a fair point. So <clears throat> so what we want to do, if, we're, if I was uh, trying to preserve or cultivate faith – and I was up against these criticisms, the first thing I'd want to do is learn to discern the difference between facts, historical facts, meaning the, the, the information that's the same no matter if you believe or don't believe or whatever else. So Joseph Smith recorded in 1832 that he had a vision. That's a historical fact. Now, you can decide if he's telling you the truth or not. It doesn't matter where you come down on that issue. Everybody has the same historical fact. So the first thing people need to do is to discern the difference between historical facts and how those facts have been interpreted and assumptions that we have about the facts. And critics like like to, and they're quite good at it, some of them, like to not d- distinguish that for you. They don't want you to distinguish those things. They want you to bring your assumptions with you. And they want to knock one or more of those out from under you. And replace it with an insinuation, and pretty soon your faith evaporates. But if you learn how to discern the difference between facts and assumptions and interpretations, there's no reason to have your whole uh, 
faith crumble in front of you when when one of your assumptions comes up short. So to that, having laid that work, we have no evidence whatsoever that Joseph Smith tells anybody about it except the Methodist minister. He says, a few days after it happened, I told it to a Methodist minister who'd been influential in the religious excitement, and he rejected it. Beside that, the only thing that the historical record says is, in the 1832 account, I could find my soul was filled with love and joy for many days. I could rejoice with great joy, but I could find no one who would believe in the heavenly vision, which leads me to to interpret that he either doesn't tell his family at all or they don't believe him. And either one of those are live possibilities in my my mind. I think that's interesting too because um, sometimes we are tempted to assume that, you know, the Smith – What's that? Tempted Tempted to to assume. assume. (laughs) Yes, yes. We're tempted to assume that the Smith family uh, were automatically believing of Joseph Smith. Right, that whatever this this young boy said is like, well, you know, we need, it's our obligation to believe him. Uh, but based on what you're saying, that you know, we should we should maybe not assume that. We no. we should expect that you know, like at least you know, if I were to have said something like that to my family, I know exactly what they would have, <laughs> what they would have told to me and even done to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we we have no reason to believe that it would have been otherwise with Joseph Smith, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly. Yes, we should not assume. Now we should not automatically assume the other either, right? right. But we a good historian does not assume what they don't know and if they do make an interpretation they communicate that that's what they're doing and historians should be better at that and readers should be much better at discerning the difference Right. It's about showing your ductwork. I, I believe I, I read a book by John Lewis Gaddis about, you know, it was called The Landscape of History. And he also critiqued many historians for failing to show the mechanics yeah. behind what they do. I think historians are obligated to do that. A moral obligation. Even, right. I one, of, one of the things we could offer to people is how to think historically, how to how to discern the difference between facts and assumptions and interpretations, even the facts and assumptions that Joseph Smith reports. Um, and so far as we can recover them, we can't always do that. But Well, I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, I mean, this was the issue back in the day when when the world was still illiterate and they relied on people who could read to, to read the Bible to them. You know, the, the problem is um, – I think a lot of times people in academia forget that most people, the common, we'll just say the common run-of-the-mill person, is not versed in the world of academia. They don't know what it means to formally research something, you know, to cite sources and things like that. They're basically, they're taking it off of what they're being told, usually by people who they trust, you know. And one of the wonderful and terrible things about the internet is (laughs) that you can go on there and it's like, Joseph Smith. And all of a sudden, here come all these dozens of articles, some good, some bad. But when trying to determine, like you said, what is fact, what actually happened, a lot of people, it's like, I'm not a church historian, you know, so a lot of these documents that people talk about, I'm like, I don't even know if that's true. Like, do these documents really even exist? So what would you say to someone who is, is legitimately seeking for factual, they want to know the facts, you know? What are, where are those resources for them as far as church history goes? 
Well, Google is not a synonym for seeking, right? Googling. <laughs> so, so you wouldn't you wouldn't recommend the Wikipedia? No. <laughs> All right, I'll remember no, that. No, I would see the thing I want to do is get back to the sources themselves. So, yeah. who cares what Orsamus Turner tells me about what Joseph Smith experienced? I want to hear Joseph Smith tell me that. Now, people are going to say, "Well, yeah, but that's subjective." Right. Right. <laughs> How did Joseph Smith experience his world? Exactly. I want to know what his subjective experience was. And he's the only one who can tell me that, really. So I don't want to stop until I've held in my hands his documents. And that won't necessarily happen to everybody, but you can get awfully close these days. You can get high-resolution images at josephsmithpapers.org. And whatever the question is, Whatever the question is, I want to know from the sources of the knowledge. And even when we do that, we should not be uh, t – we should not assume that we're going to be able to find the answer to all our questions. There are right. many things – there are many issues I have, questions I have about church history. I have studied every possible source of available evidence. Russell's done this too. And you still don't know what the answer to the question is. And, and we're that not going to matter know. of faith. Yeah, lot, lots of times it's a matter of faith. Some of these are just a matter of curiosity. It, it's not a, a faith point necessarily, but some of them are. Yeah, some of them are. Did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Abraham from documents he had, uh, the way he translated the Book of Mormon, or did he receive it by revelation, something similar to the Book of Moses? Well, we've been over every shred of the documents that are available to us, and we do not know the answer to that question. And, you know, I, I've spent the past year or so uh, working on my second book, which is uh, going to be a history of blacks and Mormonism from uh, from 1830 all the way to, uh, to 2013. And I can say, you know, even looking – like looking at some pretty large mounds of documents on 20th century Mormonism and race – and I mean there are significantly more documents in the 20th century than there are in the mm -hmm. 19th century. Even then – you don't have the answers that you want so badly. Even then, there is, you know, some level of, um, you know, of supposition at times. Sure, uh, that, that's required just to figure out people's motives. Because very seldomly do people express their motives in a transparent way. Right, and it's not mm -hmm. because they're trying to deceive you. It's just they don't feel it necessary yeah. to do so. They're they're functioning off of their assumptions. They're not trying right. to tell they're you. They're subconsciously about them. driven by their by their belief, you mm -hmm. know, and it's it's coming through. So how about a book like – okay, this might be a loaded question, answer or don't. <laughs> so books like Fawn Brody's book or even Palmer's book, um, regardless of their interpretation, right. are their books credible? No. You would say no. Yeah. No, I don't, uh, I don't want to be misunderstood. Um, you know, Fawn Brody is a brilliant writer. Mm. She is a terrible historian. She is terrible. She is the master of insinuation. That's that's not good history. Okay, it might be good writing. Yeah, it might oh, be a, a good narrative. Like Absolutely. Twilight, you know, it's a good <laughs> cup of cocoa. And now, um, Grant Palmer, I don't think he realized. I don't have any personal animosity to, toward him whatsoever. In fact, my heart went out to him as I read his book. It's it's quite a confessional book in an interesting way. He sort of bears his soul there, um, talks about the vulnerability of his own faith. And I – man, my – I want to help people who are 
in this situation, but he, in my opinion, doesn't realize how poor of a historian he is. He's overconfident in his abilities. Um, and we could, we could cite specific examples, but he, he's so inconsistent. When he has an agenda in one chapter, he'll use a source one way. He'll turn around in another chapter and use the same source to make a different point that actually negates the other point that he made. So he, he, books like that, and I, I told you earlier that I'm, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I don't pretend to objectivity. And when a book starts out by telling me how objective it's going to be, I immediately become more skeptical than I already was, and I already read skeptically. So I don't tell anybody that I'm going to tell you a perfectly objective story. I'm not sure that's possible. I don't think it is. And I'm more interested in the subjectivity of history than the objectivity of it. Okay, so so that book that uh, Grant Palmer wrote is just um, – it's it's so calculated to it, it's such it, it's a thinly veiled attempt to say I'm going to tell you the truth I'm going to be objective I'm going to be bipartisan it's um it's not that way so this is a really fascinating discussion and and I'm curious about um, how we can take the first vision and uh, and incorporate it into a 21st century worldview. We're, we're, we're living in a global Mormonism, a, a Mormonism where you're, you're dealing with you know, people who are living in, in rural Africa or you know, they're living in Taiwan. How does Joseph Smith resonate with oh, them? I yeah. mean, at, at the end of the day, he was a, a Yankee living in a rural town in upstate New York. Could they really ever connect with someone like oh, that? Absolutely. There, I don't think there's anything about Mormonism that translates better than the first vision. If any of you lack wisdom, let her, him, them ask of God. It works wherever you are, whenever you are, and the story will resonate cross cultures and uh, all over the world. One way to notice that is that the entries to the church's um, art competition very frequently have a first vision motif, and they come from all different cultures, and they're really, they're really. Um, representations of people's faith and the way they resonate with the first vision. That's fantastic. I, I think Richard Bushman uh, once said, uh, he actually once wrote an article on Joseph Smith for the 21st century uh, and talking about how he's not merely a provincial figure living in upstate New York who's in just his bumpkin, right? He, he, his message is one that can be adapted and appropriated to a number of different communities and cultures. Yeah. So we're going to need to bring this to a close, though. I, I'm sure Brittany and I could pick your brain for, for a long time here. Oh, many hours. I'm picking. Uh, <laughs> but it's been a fantastic experience. And we're so grateful for your, your in-depth knowledge as well as your commitment to allowing your faith to inform your scholarship. That, that's something that uh, scholars are afraid to do. And, and I feel like it's, it's authentic and all the more illuminating because of it. Yeah, it's just who I am. I, if I did anything else, I'd be pretending to be something I'm not. So, And none of us want to do that. Thank you again for joining us. Please join us next time. We'll be talking about a, a history of Mormonism and its ideas and conceptions of grace and, and how you know, grace has taken on different forms and articulations over the course of the past 180 years. 
Please do have a fantastic week, and we will be speaking to you next time. 